Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. California's last remaining nuclear energy facility, Diablo Canyon in San Luis Obispo County, produces enough carbon-free energy to power 3 million homes each year. That's about 7% of the state's annual energy profile, and it's scheduled to shut down by 2025. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom says he's worried about energy shortages when Diablo goes offline, and he may consider trying to delay the closure. KCBX's Rachel Showalter has more. Newsom told the LA Times editorial board he's planning to ask for a share of the $6 billion in federal funds President Biden announced last month, which are meant to save nuclear plants at risk of closing. Central Coast Democratic Congressman Salud Carbajal says he supports renewable energy, but... If Governor Newsom is changing course, it is imperative for him to include the same community stakeholders who were part of the original decision to retire the Diablo Canyon power plant. Diablo Canyon's operator, Utility PG&E, has previously said it doesn't plan to renew the plant's operating license past 2025. But in a statement Friday, PG&E spokesperson Suzanne Hassan said the utility is committed to California's clean energy future and is open to considering all options to ensure continued safe and reliable energy delivery to customers. Newsom made clear the plant will still definitely close eventually, even if there is a delay. Nuclear energy advocates say the shift to renewables isn't happening fast enough in California to make up for the loss of Diablo Canyon. Heather Hoff works at the power plant and founded the nuclear advocacy group Mothers for Nuclear. Speaking on behalf of the group, Hoff says the plant is a huge source of clean energy, and keeping it open for longer would reduce the state's reliance on fossil fuels. I'm just so glad that people are willing to talk about it and keep considering that as an option. It's not too late. Jane Swanson with San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, an anti-nuclear group, says she's concerned with the safety of nuclear energy. It makes me feel quite terrified. Every day, every year it operates further, it becomes older and less reliable. PG&E says the plant has a long-standing record of safe operation. Still, Swanson says Mothers for Peace would evaluate possibilities for legal action to block the continued operation of the plant if PG&E chooses to renew their license. The deadline for PG&E to apply for the federal funds is May 19th. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Showalter in San Luis Obispo. And change is coming to California's rooftop solar market. But what that change looks like remains a mystery. Here's more from KPBS reporter Eric Anderson in San Diego. California is still waiting for a reboot of efforts to overhaul the state's solar power system three months after the governor essentially shut the process down. I'll say this about the plan, we still have some work to do. The January state budget news conference was really the only time that Gavin Newsom spoke publicly about the utility-friendly plan unveiled in December. That blueprint called for steep monthly connection fees and slashed the value of electricity residents sell back to the grid. Do I think uh, that changes need to be made? Yes, I do. But since then, crickets. It's all he's really said. Dave Rosenfeld works with the Solar Rights Alliance, a group pushing back against the first CPUC proposal. 
He warns that the plan would kill the state's popular and successful solar industry. It's remarkable. Something this popular, something this clear where the public is at. And then, you know, again, his primary surrogate at the CPUC, Alice Reynolds, has said also remarkably little. But Rosenfeld says the wall of silence has cracks, and he's concerned about what's leaking through. CPUC staffer Simon Baker told state lawmakers at the end of March that non-solar customers are paying billions of dollars to subsidize solar. These remarks came from Baker during a legislative hearing. I should clarify that there are um, other points that are on the record as well, and it is a, a disputed issue of fact. Disputed, but Baker only presented one side of the story. He echoed utility complaints that costs linked to rooftop solar are being shifted to non-solar customers. And Assemblymember Wendy Correa, in turn, echoed Baker's remarks and even read them into the legislative record. The cost shift in not addressing net energy metering, which hurts renters and uh, low-income families, would be at the tune of $6.7 billion if not addressed by 2030. Correct? Based on what you just said. Yes, that's what I said. The Solar Rights Alliance's David Rosenfeld says Baker is spreading utility disinformation. The opposite is true, by the way. Rooftop solar users not only pay their fair share, but they actually reduce the cost of the electrical grid and saves all ratepayers' money whether or not they have solar. Rosenfeld says rooftop solar does away with the need to build costly transmission lines to large solar farms in the backcountry. And power lines that don't get built won't start fires that can cost the state and utilities billions. Since January, the commission's meetings, which didn't even have solar on the agenda, were filled with hours of comments like these from Oakland's Area White. I totally oppose any kind of solar tax from rooftop solar, including fixed charges that discriminate against solar users. The state's investor-owned utilities, including San Diego Gas and Electric, are staying quiet on the issue. SDG&E repeatedly declined a chance to be interviewed, but said in a statement they look forward to a CPUC decision. And that is something utility-funded groups like Affordable Energy for All agree with. Kathy Fairbanks says, enough already. Legislators have been complaining about the lack of movement at the Public Utilities Commission. The solar industry is complaining about the same thing. We're complaining about the same thing. I think everyone would like to see this wrapped up. When that decision comes, it could completely change California's solar landscape or only make minor adjustments. Regulators have to balance utility demands to stay profitable, while at the same time growing the solar market so California can meet rigorous carbon reduction goals. For the California Report, I'm Eric Anderson in San Diego. Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at osh.com. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul, for 30 years, or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe. 
wherever you get your podcasts. This upcoming June primary is the first chance to see the effects of new local campaign finance limits in California. Jefferson Public Radio's Roman Battaglia explores how those limits are affecting the money that flows into Shasta County races. California state lawmakers revised campaign finance laws in 2019, setting a default limit on contributions to campaigns for city and county elections. No politician is ever going to tell you that money affects how they vote, but the public is not naive and it can affect how they vote. That's Sean McMorris with California Common Cause, a progressive advocacy group seeking to reform campaign finance. Assembly Bill 571 went into effect last year, but not before some campaigns saw huge donations. Shasta County is a perfect example. Former Shasta County landowner Revere's Anselmo just dropped $100,000. Connecticut billionaire Revere's Anselmo's $100,000 donation to now County Supervisor Patrick Jones remains the largest single donation in county history. Back in the early 2000s, Anselmo, former filmmaker and heir to a vast fortune, started a new life in Northern California. He poured millions into a complex featuring a vineyard, restaurant, beef cattle operation, and a private chapel. But the newcomer quickly faced roadblocks with Shasta County officials. Anselmo and the county butted heads on a number of issues, including inspections. With a grudge against the county, Anselmo gave more than half a million dollars to candidates running for the Board of Supervisors in the past couple elections, all to support people who would advocate reform of the county government that fought against him. And his record-setting campaign donation might remain forever because of the new campaign finance law. McMorris with California Common Cause says the goal of the bill wasn't to impose any limits on local governments, but force them to make a conscious decision on what's acceptable. Cities and counties are still allowed to determine their own maximums. For instance, Pasadena, a couple of months ago, they were set to pass an ordinance that would say we have no campaign contribution limits. And the community found out about it, and there was very big pushback. And the bill, the ordinance essentially got tabled uh, indefinitely. Before the change, folks could donate an unlimited amount. Now, by sticking to the defaults outlined in the bill, individuals can only give a maximum of $4,900 to any one candidate this cycle. Shasta County has yet to set their own campaign contribution limits. Contenders running in this upcoming primary election have mixed feelings about the new limits. I had a local pastor friend of mine give me $5. That's Chris Kelstrom, running to replace retiring Shasta County Board Chair Les Baugh. That $5 means more to me than $4,900 from some, you know, special interest group or foundation or, you know, business that's trying to buy influence to my vote. Kelstrom supports campaign limits because they force candidates to do more outreach in their communities. But another political newcomer, Kevin Cry, doesn't see the problem in these large donations. Cry, running for the other open seat on the board, says the county is just a shell of its old self. Because we've allowed crime and homelessness to just overrun our area. And so because somebody who has an affinity for Shasta County says, hey, I've got money, I want to make that place better, that's their right to give it. Though it appears the limits on donations in local elections may curb the influence of big money, some worry the new laws won't be enforced. Mary Rickard is a current supervisor in Shasta County, one who nearly faced a recall election herself. I think they'll occasionally have a $4,900 contribution here and there, but I think there's a lot of money in the background. In early 2021, Rickert filed complaints with the California Fair Political Practices Commission, the statewide agency responsible for campaign finance law enforcement. 
Her complaints were aimed at the recall Shasta campaign, which successfully replaced moderate county supervisor Leonard Modi earlier this year. She argues the group failed to follow basic campaign finance laws. Those cases are still under investigation by the FPPC almost a year later. Rickert says it's very likely if her opponents win their elections to the board, Shasta County could also do away with campaign limits. That would again open the field to large donors like Anselmo. Right now, I think that the money's still circulating, and I think that um, basically the rules aren't being followed anyway. She argues the inaction by the FPPC to crack down on campaign finance wrongdoings allows this funding to continue behind the scenes. Rickert fears this could all culminate in a takeover of the entire county government. For the California Report, I'm Roman Battaglia in Shasta County. Parents, when did you go from being the center of your child's universe to... Oh, good grief. Yes, ma'am? Well, a new study from the Stanford School of Medicine shed some light on why it is that teens tune mom out. KQED's Vanessa Rancaño reports. When kids under 12 hear their mom's voice, it creates a burst of activity in their brain's reward systems compared to hearing a stranger's voice. But when researchers looked at how teenagers' brains responded, the opposite was true. They didn't get the warm fuzzies like they used to from mom's voice. Instead, researcher Dan Abrams says their reward centers now lit up for unfamiliar voices. Reward is, a, is like a really important concept in thinking about adolescent behavior. You know, the way that they seek out novel things, the way that they take risks. Abrams, the study's lead author, says the findings point to what's driving these behavior changes in teens. What it shows is that a large part of their behavior is attributed to how their reward systems change during adolescence. Why would the brain's response change this way? We think it's adaptive, you know. Eventually, kids have to leave the family unit and form their own life. It's easy to kind of take it maybe a little bit personally when your teenager isn't listening. But I think what our study kind of shows is that, you know, there's a biological basis for it. So, at least some of the time, they may not be tuning you out on purpose. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. And that's the California Report for Monday, May 2nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The James Irvine Foundation committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.